and really the Torah. And then this third wave is Nehemiah, where it's about rebuilding the city, a special, with a special focus on rebuilding the walls. In chapter 1, Nehemiah has learned something about Jerusalem that has really distressed him. He's learned that Jerusalem, despite this temple rebuilding, despite Ezra's work, Jerusalem is still lying in ruins, and the people are remaining, the people remaining there, the people that have arrived there, they're still struggling. And he hears this report from his brother Hanani, in, we read about it in verse uh, 3 of chapter 1, where it says, They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And that's something that really troubles Nehemiah. It represents the city not being rebuilt safe and flourishing. So how does Nehemiah react to this news? He, he is brokenhearted. He sits down, he weeps, he mourns. And he begins to pray and fast. And that's really the majority of chapter 1 contains this example of, of how he prayed. He praises the covenant-keeping God. The people had been exiled for their unfaithfulness to the covenant. But he thinks of God, reminds himself, reminds God of, the, of God's promise of grace and mercy if the people return to God and keep the commandments. And he's pleading to God for mercy, and he asks for success. And so in chapter 2, we're, we're here wondering, how would God answer this prayer? It seems like an impossible situation. How would God answer this prayer? And from the report of this news, his praying and fasting goes on for four months. Four months waiting for an answer. Four months have passed in the life of Nehemiah. And we're not told exactly about the details of his prayer request or what he talked about with the wall rebuilding, but we do learn that he wants to see God's city rebuilt, and he wants the people restored physically and spiritually. And he's worried about the people that are there struggling. Well, how would God answer the prayer? Through a divine appointment, and we have a little clue of this, what sets off these events. Right at the end of chapter 1, if you look right at the end of chapter 1, there's this simple little phrase that says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. Cupbearer to the king. This is going to be an important clue in how these events are going to take place. Okay, so that with that introduction in chapter 1, we're ready to look at our passage. So follow along as I read, and, and we're going to look more closely at this dramatic turn of events in Nehemiah's life, and it's going to be a dramatic turn of events for the people of Israel. And pay special attention right at the end of the story in verse 8 of what's really all behind this. So this is God's word. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, 
seeing you are not sick. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors and the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for a house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he bless this reading and preaching of it. Let's pray. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read or have been read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth. We may decrease and Christ might increase in our lives, that we might be taught your will, that it would bear much fruit for your kingdom. We ask this for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, that's quite a turn of events, isn't it? Four months of praying and fasting, and what an answer to prayer. We'll see in a minute. It is a really drastic turn of events. But did you notice that explanation in verse 8? What he attributes all of this happening? It's the hand of God upon it. The sovereign God is involved in this whole thing. Did you notice how Nehemiah's work as a cupbearer makes a difference? I mean, a cupbearer has special privilege, has access to the king in a special way, unlike a lot of the exiles who were slaves and could not come into contact with him. But Nehemiah, by God's grace and providence, has given, given this opportunity to be close to the king with that important role of cupbearer. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that this is a drastic turn of events. Well, let me show you why. In Ezra chapter 4, we have some really important background information about the decrees of walls being built. This same king, Artaxerxes, listen to what decree he made in the past. We find this in Ezra chapter 4, verses 19 to 21, where this same king says this, I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found, that this city of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. So he's talking about Jerusalem. 
And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. Okay, so he's the one saying, no, you can't rebuild. This is going to stop, and unless I say it's, it can happen, it can't happen. I, he'd have to change his mind. And it doesn't sound like he's ready to. So years ago, this same king said, without my permission, you, this is not going to be rebuilt. So who has access to the king to make this request? Who can petition the king for this decree to be rebuilt? Maybe only a few close to him like Nehemiah. And we know that God uses cupbearers. You might think of Joseph in Genesis as well. How great is it to have close access to the king? And think about this. Nehemiah has been praying. He's been asking. He's been seeking. He's been knocking. And he's been planning. And now in our passage, the opportunity finally comes as cupbearer. The opportunity that changes things dramatically where this king will make a different decree. And the way we want to look at this passage is to really see this message to you this morning from God that it's good news that God is rebuilding and restoring people because the hand of God is good. It's because of his good hand. We want to just worship and praise him for that and see his good hand to us. And well, we see God's good hand in our passage first with Nehemiah's desire for the rebuilding. We'll see that in verses 1 to 3. We see God's good hand in the king's decree to rebuild. That's that change of mind, verses 4 through 7. And then most importantly, we see that God's good hand in the explanation in verse 8 that this is ultimately a divine rebuilding. So that's how we'll work through the passage. And let's begin with looking at Nehemiah's desire to rebuild the city. You can see that he has this strong desire because it's, it says in our passage that he has a sad heart. That it, it, somehow it no longer can, he can't really hide it, it seems like. Possibly he could have used this up, you know, acting like this to get his opportunity to ask. We don't really know in the story, but it seems like it's just something is troubling him so much, and he's been praying about it, and it's on his heart so much that eventually it just comes out on his face. It says in verse 2, The king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Now, his sadness might be surprising if you think about his life. I mean, think about his position. He's actually not from Jerusalem. He's grown up in Babylon. He's part of that people that are exiled as slaves. And yet he's made it to an important position as the cupbearer to the king. He's got it pretty good. So it might be surprising that he feels something strongly about his people back in Jerusalem. And the other thing is, it's not really... 
good to look sad in front of the king when you're the cupbearer, is it? First of all, the cupbearer would usually serve the cup to king at festive events. And it doesn't make sense. It wouldn't be appropriate for him to look sad. And would it make the king think, hmm, the cupbearer is plotting something. He's up to something. Or maybe uh, something was wrong with the drink that he tested. Hmm, why does he look like this? Was he poisoned? Well, we don't know if Nehemiah was planning to get his attention this way by kind of acting sad, or maybe he just could no longer hide his sadness. Maybe he couldn't cover it up anymore. Maybe he couldn't be festive knowing about the people and the state of Jerusalem. Maybe he couldn't cover it up with his city lied, the city of his father's lying in ruins. Maybe he's thinking of a return to worshiping God freely. Because, and it was the month of Nisan, which is the year, the new year, and the time to reflect on the Exodus and celebrate Passover. But here he is, he has this good position, and he's willing to risk all of that to do God's will. And God gives him that desire. While the sadness could cost him his access to the king, it could cost him his job, or worse, his life, he's willing to risk it. So that's the position that he's in. Think about the place that he's in. He's in the city of Susa. He's in a royal palace. And he wants to go to a struggling city, broken apart. Total contrast from the situation that he's in. He could have been comfortable. He could have stayed there. To go and rebuild the wall was dangerous. You see, he asks for letters for safety because it's a long journey. There it was a, hundreds of miles through dangerous territories, through enemy territory, people that were not, wouldn't be f favoring the rebuild. Would he give this up to make the request? Would he go through with it? There just feels like there's so many parallels to the gospel of Jesus leaving and coming and going through all the way to the cross. Well, finally, I want you to think about the people that he cares about in Jerusalem. Did you ever wonder who remained in Jerusalem when they were exiled? Have you ever read about that? Almost everybody was taken out of there, especially the successful people and the leaders. But we have, in, we have information in 2 Kings chapter 26 that tells us all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. That's where they were destroyed. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, they all carried those people into exile. So they break the walls, they destroy the city, they bring the people out. And then in verse 12 here in, in 2 Kings 26, it says, But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So God gives Nehemiah the desire for rebuilding and he cares about the people who were the poorest, the least, the lost, the lowest, the ones that were left alone without leaders. So he has this position that he's willing to risk, he has this place he's willing to leave and he has these people that are not the most cared for that he cares about. 
And Nehemiah has been praying, and he's been fasting, and God begins to answer. I wonder, think about this in your life. In our sinful, selfish, natural state, we may want just to stay in positions of comfort. We may not really care for the lowest and the least. It's a temptation that we have in our selfish, fallen humanity. We may not have compassion on those who don't know Jesus and are hostile to the gospel. It may be difficult for us. But this is not how our brother Nehemiah was about his people in Jerusalem. And this is not how our Lord Jesus is. Let us be a people, let Hope Church be a people who look out for neighbor, who care about all, and who share the gospel with all. So we've seen Nehemiah's desire to rebuild. What's the king going to do? Let's look at the king's decree to rebuild. In verse 4, the king asks, what are you requesting? And Nehemiah now turns to quick silent prayer. He's been praying for four months and fasting, but now there's quick silent prayer, and then he goes for it. This is the turning point of the story, isn't it? The king changes his mind. You heard his decree from years ago, from ordering the work to cease to supporting the work. These kinds of changes can only be attributed to the good hand of God. And God answers Nehemiah's prayer. Some people have asked me about praying to a sovereign God. Why would you pray if God is sovereign and directs everything? What good could it be? But we actually see an example here in the story that we pray precisely because God is sovereign. And this passage should be encouraging you to bring your desires to God in prayer, to be patient, persistent, and watching for answers. I've also heard people say something about plans in God. See, Nehemiah, he's gonna have, he does have a plan here. In a minute, you'll see. He's got a plan. He wants the letters. He knows where he wants the timber. He's thought this through a lot. And I've had people tell me, has anybody ever said this to you? If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Well, I guess there's some truth in that, in the sense that we can't control things. We're not God. We don't write the story that way. But I think there's a risk there, too, that we could say, oh, we don't really have to plan. We don't have to think things through. We just let it happen. I, don't, I think that's a temptation on that side of it. But here, Nehemiah has a plan. We see it in verse 7. It says, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me and the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so that he may give me the timber to make the beams and the gates. So you can see, he's got a plan. He knows what he wants to rebuild. He knows he needs the materials. And he goes for it. In our fallen condition, though, I think there's a temptation to want to be like God. We might think we can control God by our actions and behavior. But this is all his grace and his good hand doing this. We might be tempted to think that God is far away and not involved. But even when you hear stories like this in God's word, he's telling you that he is involved in your life. He's telling you about his providential hand. He's in total control and fully present and involved in your life. 
This is what throughout church history we've called the doctrine of providence, that God directs the events in our lives. And though, he is the ult- and though he's the ultimate cause, he uses means to bring those things about. So he uses the circumstances and events in life to bring about those things. Westminster Shorter Catechism, answer 11, defines providence this way. God's work of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And then Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, adds, God in his ordinary providence makes use of means. And we see this happening in the answer to Nehemiah's prayer. Isn't it good news to hear that the good hand of God and not sinful humanity is in control? I love how the Heidelberg Catechism speaks of God's providence because it brings in the language of God's good hand. In question 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism, it says, Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth. He upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth, and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Praise God for his hand of providence. And whatever you're facing this week, you can be patient if things are going against you. You can be thankful if things are going well. And you could be confident for the future. Because if you are in Christ, you are completely and permanently held in the hand of God, in his good hand. Well, then let's look at that explanation, the proof of how this all came about in verse 8, where he says, The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. What is the cause of Nehemiah's success? It's God's good hand. And he's going to go rebuild Jerusalem. And we might want to think about why that's so significant. Three different waves of exiles going back. Jeremiah prophesied. One thing that's interesting is Nehemiah probably hasn't been there. It's not just about his family heritage. There's something bigger. It's all part of the storyline of the Bible and God's plan of redemption. It's not just a city or nation that's at stake, but really it's nothing less than the plan of redemption taking place here. This rebuild is most fully about the gospel of Christ. If you compare the details of the story with the work of Jesus Christ, it can really start jumping off the page. There's, it's just a good meditation to think about how many parallels and things will make you think of Christ here. Let's just list a few. The Savior of the world had to come from the people of Israel. The key events in Christ's life to accomplish salvation, they need to take place there. That's where the cross is going to be. Nehemiah left a royal palace 
and Jesus left heaven and God's throne to save sinners. They both traveled far and left comfortable positions. Nehemiah rebuilds God's city, and Jesus is rebuilding the fallen world. Both were cupbearers. Nehemiah for the king. What cup did Jesus bear? Jesus bore the cup of God's wrath for, that was due to sinners. Nehemiah never wore a crown. He wasn't that kind of uh, royal ruler. He didn't command an army. He was a cupbearer when this all came about. He didn't conquer a territory. He was never a famous philosopher or teacher. Well, Jesus did wear a crown, a crown of thorns as he went to die in sinner's place. And he didn't command an army here, but he commands the host of heaven. And he didn't conquer territories in the earth like the Roman Empire, but he did conquer sin and death and has authority over all things. Jesus wasn't known as the great teacher of Israel at first, but obviously he taught with all authority and he had all wisdom and he's the eternal word. This is God's good hand in our lives. And he calls people that do not yet know him to repent and believe in him for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. For he is building his church and he's advancing his kingdom even now. And let me be clear, he offers that to you if you have not yet trusted in Christ. Turn to him today. Do not wait. Repent and believe in Christ as Savior and Lord. Does anyone need to trust in Christ for the first time in their life this morning? There's application to believers as well. Hopefully this message will give you greater desire for the kingdom to be built, for the gospel to advance, to persist and persevere through challenges. And I know you had a missions conference this year, so I could see how even this idea of rebuilding and reviving could encourage you to be part of God's mission to rebuild. Look at Nehemiah's commitment to prayer, and it could increase your desire to commit to praying kingdom prayers. Look at the desire of Ezra to go back to obedience, and it will be important for Nehemiah as well. So it's a call and a reminder to follow him each day according to his word. But Nehemiah saw God's providential power and wisdom orchestrating all of this. Well then, let's, let's take a look all the way at the end of the Bible in conclusion about the walls of that final city. In Isaiah chapter 60, there's a prophecy about the future the future glory of Israel, as they, they just give a heading, and our translators have given us that heading in chapter 60 of Isaiah. And there's this amazing reference. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. This is verse 17 of Isaiah 60. 
Instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron, I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. That's the ultimate rebuilding of the city where there's so much safety, you don't even need the wall just to be protection. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. And you see that referenced in right at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, don't you? That talk of a city that doesn't need, doesn't need sun or moon, it's the glory of God lights it. What's interesting is I've, I've read that passage many times, Perhaps you have too, and you noticed the light, the light, not needing light, you noticed the glory of God, but there's all this talk about the walls too. The, re, the final state of God's holy city, the new Jerusalem, has special walls. It says in Revelation 21, verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Here we're given this description of this permanent city with perfect, beautiful walls in the city of God, and that city is at peace in the presence of Christ, where there'll be no more threats. And it's a lot different than walls you rebuilt for protection, because in verse 25 of that same chapter, Revelation 21, it said, the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who were written in the Lamb's book of life. What a beautiful picture of walls needing to be built to keep really other nations, other countries out. And Christ makes a way and brings all, all his people into his safe protection forever. Where the walls are salvation and the gates are peace. So I urge you to trust and follow the risen Christ. He's coming back one day for his own. Seek his righteousness, his kingdom first in your life. And may you live your life this week in the good hand of God, trusting him, and in the confident hope of the day where we will see him face to face. Let's pray. Almighty God and merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves. We just fall down before your majesty, your sovereign hand. Father, I ask you that this seed of your word that was sown among us, that it would take deep root, that nothing, not, not any persecution or any distraction would cause it to wither, not any care, the thorny cares of this life, choke it out but rather as seed that is sown in good ground, let this word preached bring forth 30, 60, or 100-fold as your good hand upon us has appointed.
Amen.